Hi everyone, it's Jamie. I just want to share with you that my new book, Toxic Relationship Recovery, is available now. This book is for anyone who is healing after a harmful relationship, but it's also for people that are looking to identify toxic traits, toxic behaviors, and toxic strategies that get used upon people every single day. The second half of the book teaches you strategies to heal your inner voice and find your authentic self after experiencing this type of harm. I'm looking forward to you all reading it and hearing your feedback from it. It's available today. Find Toxic Relationship Recovery wherever you buy books. This is Unlearned, a self-rising production. I'm Jamie. And I'm CA. And we are your hosts. This is a podcast all about deconstructing who we are, and exploring who we are becoming. Yay, we're back. Hello, everybody. How are we doing? Thanks for sticking through our break and uh, having patience with us. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you guys, we are trying to ask our listeners to help support our production costs with some Patreon subscriptions. If you are interested in helping us keep this podcast going, keep our, you know, momentum flowing, please, please consider um, the gift of at least like a dollar a month or $5 a month and just do that on our Patreon. We really, really appreciate any support that you can give us there. Uh, And with that, let's just get to the episode. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we today are talking about the long-awaited episode (laughs) where we are going to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of neurodivergence and the process of learning that you're neurodivergent or embracing your neurodivergence. My um, social media page is literally called Embracing Divergence and the process of unmasking and what that does to our like internal relationship with ourself through that process, how that affects the relationships we have with the people around us through that process. There's a lot to kind of dig into here, but this is one that we is near and dear to both of our hearts as we are both late diagnosed neurodivergent humans. Um, And so we, this is very personal. Like we have literally both personally gone through a lot of this process. And in some ways it's almost like a non-stop, like an ongoing process, right? It doesn't really ever end necessarily because once you learn to embrace your divergence, you're just that person now. And that's now you're operating in the world in a kind of new way. And it can be, there's a, there's a lot that can happen during that process. And you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your relationships and it's a whole thing. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the requested topics we've had because the complexity that happens with a lot of people who are late diagnosed neurodivergent, or let's say they, you know, even had a diagnosis when they're a child, what ends up happening is we get a lot of comorbidities, we get a lot of things that blend into that. And then it becomes incredibly, incredibly tricky to untangle. So this is kind of what we're, yeah, this is what we're kind of aiming to do in this episode. Yeah. So when we're talking, just to make sure we know what we're talking about, when we're talking about neurodivergence, like for me, I'm coming from the space of pretty much like tackling ADHD and autism 
However, with what Jamie just said, if you have made it to adulthood with one or both of those neurodivergencies in your brain, the chances of you getting there without some sort of other comorbidity attached along the way are very, very, very low. Um, Most people who are operating in a world that is not built for neurodivergent brains are going to develop other comorbidities somewhere along the way, whether that's anxiety, depression, combo of the two, you get OCD, get all kinds of mood disorders and things that can accompany these things. And so that's a lot of the stuff that sometimes like comes out through the process However, it's also some of the stuff that keeps you from getting your ADHD or ASD diagnosis because those things tend to be a little bit more readily understood and sort of like easier to or like more commonly recognized. Like you can tell when somebody's anxious and like there's like behaviors that are very like on the surface and easy to spot and depression. It's easy to spot, right? And so we, we treat that surface and the same stuff happens on like very medicalized things as well as like it's what often happens is like this person is suffering in this way. And so we want to quickly like relieve that suffering. And so we're going to treat those surface symptoms in the most common ways that, you know, are readily available at the time. And then what ends up happening, and I'm going to let you take over this, is what happens when those treatments don't work? Because what's really happening under the surface is it might look like anxiety. It might look like depression. But if we're not digging deeper into like, what is actually the processes behind some of these outwardly anxious or depressive or whatever types of behaviors, then we might miss this like actual like deeper thing underneath, which in a lot of our cases is neurodivergence. Yeah. I mean, this is what's funny as I was telling CA during this brainstorming, I was like, what happened in my case, um, I think I've shared enough. <laughs> you guys have, depending on when you're listening to this episode, you know, I've had a lot of comorbidities throughout my whole lifetime. You know, one of my chronic things that I've had for a long time was I would just always, you know, default to, oh, that's my anxiety. That's my anxiety. That's my anxiety. And everything was labeled (laughs) in that category as anxiety. Um, And so what's interesting is being, you know, someone who was born a woman, I, you know, I was raised with all of the like, you know, filters of like what girls should act like and what women should act like. Unfortunately, yes, of course, there are late diagnosed men out there. Yes, of course, there are like late di- like there's so many factors at play here. Unfortunately, what I can speak to from my own education, but also from my own experience is that even from my educational experience, I remember being taught about at least ADHD. And then we did get, you know, some statistics and like some education around like autism. And, you know, that was one of the subspecialties I went into. But it was almost like we got taught through the lens of what these symptoms look like in boys. But nobody told us that it was only through the symptoms of what it looked like in boys. And that's what makes me so upset is like we weren't even taught as clinicians that we were actually getting taught to look for these symptoms but the symptoms were 
primarily present in little boys or, you know, preteen boys. And so it's almost like the blind leading the blind, like, because we didn't know, unfortunately, that these criteria were established through the lens of little boys, we were missing an entire population of what it looks like in little girls, whether that's autism or ADHD or ADD. We didn't even know we were missing something, which is something that I don't think a lot of people that, you know, are on, they're not on the side of education, like they're on the side of like the consumer or the client, like they don't even realize that's how that happened. And I'm going to tell you that's most likely why this got so badly perpetuated was that the people that were getting trained, and remember, I was trained less than 10 years ago. So like, I was what we would be considered recently trained. And I'm telling you that because I was not like it was never clarified that the symptoms that we were supposed to be looking out for were basically, there was a lens that was like, this is what you look for in boys. It's like, right, that's going to perpetuate a problem, right? So now my hope is, and I know there's a lot of leaders out there in like the neurodivergent world, but this is where I get so upset with some of the DSM because yes, I think the DSM is an incredible tool, but how many of the criteria that we sit and like do assessments for are through bias lens, like not just gender, but also ethnicity and like different, you know, how were there, were there people that weren't white in this study? Were there people that was this criteria based on just European white people? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, so when we don't ask those questions, we start looking for criteria in people that don't actually look like the general population, right? And so now we have women or black men that are like, that fell through the cracks where this happened or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, of course it did because we're not talking about the right criteria for each subset. We're just looking at it through this like very, very tunnel vision lens. So that's that part. And then we also have, you know, what I was going to say of my experience is that because a lot of my symptoms were um, socially adapted, like they were socially adapted out. Okay. So what I would say is, the things that I would, if I was a boy, if I was born a boy and I had these symptoms and I didn't create any social adaptivity around those symptoms, I would probably have been kicked out of these classrooms. Because if any of you know, if you ever watched me during a session, my do, my feet are doing it right now. I am a fidgeter. I am a tapper. I am a mover. I, you know, CA has her gadgets, her fidgets. Like we do this a lot during our podcast, but we are constantly in motion. We're moving, we're, you know, doing things. And because as being, because I was literally, I guess, like shamed out of that and then like sit still, be pretty, you know, do whatever. It was like, I knew that my social security or my social safety was based on me adapting out of it. But I'm not saying that boys don't get bullied that have neurodivergency. Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. Please hear me. I also think that there's different standards that happen in childhood. And those have implications, right? So when people are going like, wait, so you mean to tell me that you were struggling to not fidget all the time. And I was like, yeah, pretty much. 
you know, I knew that I would be targeted and I knew that I would be, you know, labeled problematic. So I just had to do something else. So a lot of that turned into, especially in grad school before I was diagnosed, I was just doodling and filling books after books of doodling because it was quiet, but I was able to move my, my arm and that was the way I could get the energy out. But then even that would sometimes be like, are you distracted? Why are you not paying attention? But that was literally the only way I could get that energy out without moving my foot, without tapping my pencil, without grinding my teeth or whatever it is. Like that was the only way I could do it in a socially acceptable way. So like I had all of these signs and then because the default of like why the social setting got like kind of pulled out of me or the social safety, it was like, those were the, those were the factors that like blinded people to the overt nature of my ADHD. And then when I would be struggling with comprehension or I would be struggling with task execution or I'd be struggling with maintaining like a systematic flow of like, you know, a demand. I would just later, every time that happened, I would chalk it up to, I'm getting too anxious about this. I'm getting too overwhelmed about this. I can't piece two and two together. I just might, I, I, this is just me struggling with like the demand of it all. And I would always label it as anxiety. And this is why I'm leading with this story is because it wasn't until I was in extensive therapy that we were able to create a lot of me and my therapist were able to create a lot of breakthroughs and how I coped with what would actually be considered anxiety. So like I, this is, please hear me. I did have anxiety. It wasn't that I didn't have it at all. I absolutely did have anxiety and Underneath that anxiety, I did have ADHD and currently still do, right? And so what's so interesting is that while both of those things were present, I never was able to label what was considered ADHD informed behaviors because everything was lumped under anxiety, All right. And so it wasn't until my therapist and me worked our butts off to try to get me to untangle a lot of the like ruminative. So like classic anxiety, rumination, perseveration, like thoughts that wouldn't let go, thoughts that would repeat, intrusive thoughts, like all of those things that were present. And those were real. Those were very real things that I struggled with. It wasn't until I was able to manage those and I was able to breathe and process those and release a lot of the anxieties that were present that I realized, and I remember this day, I was talking to my therapist and I go, I think some of the things we were labeling as anxiety weren't anxiety. And she, she, you know, prompted me, all right, tell me more. Like, what, what do you mean? And I would be like, okay. And here's a good example. This is actually, I think one of the examples I gave her. So this would be a classic Jamie and her anxiety. So if we were going on a trip, we were going on a trip, my anxiety, this is how the different things would manifest. All right. I'm going to walk you guys through this. If we had to plan a trip, my anxiety lens would say, how could you die? Um, what could go wrong? What? is it that is going to put you in danger? 
Uh, how are you going to disappoint people? What are you going to like, what are the things that are going to like get screwed up? And it would just get stuck on those. Those are a lot of my anxiety lens things that would go into, into my brain. But it wasn't until I was able to be like, okay, I'm safe. I'm allowed to go on a plane. Like I'm safer in a plane than I am in a car. Like I was able to like process through all of those things. Right. And I released a lot of the like fear of death and a lot of the fear of screwing up or embarrassment. It's not the end of the world. If I trip and the airport, like it is okay. And I was able to work through that. And that's not me pretending. I genuinely said, it's okay. Now, if I fall and people see me fall and I'm embarrassed, it is okay. Right. So I was able to release a lot of that anxiety. And then at the bottom of that, I explained to my therapist, I go, And an entire other layer of the, what I would label trip anxiety would be, I would shut down around packing. And once I was able to process through, okay, that's not informed by thinking you're going to die. That's an entire other pressure that's coming from something else. And I remember not having the words to describe the tension that would come into my brain around the demand of packing. And it got so bad that I would have like panic attacks around packing because I genuinely would shut down about the demand, the executive function demand of like, think about how many little things you put into a pack, into a suit, suitcase, right? There's probably in an entire zipped up standard size suitcase, there's probably what, CA, at least a hundred items, like sure. depending yeah, on toiletries and stuff, easily, yeah, with, easily with toiletries, right? But my brain would say, wow, you're so anxious, you can't pack. But when I untangled what anxiety thoughts were and what other thoughts that didn't have anxiety informing them were, I looked at my therapist and I go, there's something else that creates that pressure. And it's actually not my anxiety. I know it isn't because I've gotten very familiar with the way my anxiety sounds and it's not sounding anything like that. So what is this? And once we started tackling that, when I would be placed with the demand of packing, my executive dysfunction would go like haywire. I would be like, I would, I would be not organizing the task well. I would be halfway in. I would panic. I would, I would be like, I can't do this. This is too demanding. It would like shut down. And, and it wasn't, I can't do this because I think I'm going to die when I go on this trip. It was, I'm just not functioning well in this task. And so once my therapist walked me through this, she's like, okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's (laughs) like, she started realizing, okay, this does sound like some of the executive functioning is going haywire and it's not organized enough. So we need to work on mindfully working through this task and taking breaks and breaking it up. And so we did a lot of that, but it wasn't until I untangled that, that I was able to even access what it felt like to have an ADHD brain. Yeah. It's interesting how like when you start to heal from some of the traumas and some of the other types of like mood things and anxiety things that 
oftentimes does for a lot of people that leads to discovering that there's something else going on. And one of the things that Jamie and I had talked about off air, um, we were, I always use the analogy when I'm trying to describe to people, like, what is it about neurodivergence and like the brain versus like what is sometimes commonly referred to as like neurotypical brain. I don't super love that phrase, but that's what you hear a lot. Um, so the, what I always describe it as is like, we're just talking about two different operating systems. This one is operating on a windows, um, OS, and this one is operating on like a, a Apple, like a Mac OS. And so it's like, these two computers are both highly advanced and highly functional and able to produce a lot of the same types of tasks. Maybe we just say Android versus iPhone. That might even be easier. (laughs) So let's just say Android versus iPhone, right? Like these two phones. (laughs) Not (laughs) Not sponsored. Not sponsored by either. (laughs) Not Not sponsored by either. Neither. Neither is superior. Okay. Um, Neither is better than the other. Both are able to fully function in the ways that they need to function. But let's be honest, they function very differently. And so, and both of them also are like capable and compatible to have like various filters put in. Let's just use that analogy, right? And so like, if we're talking about anxiety as like a filter, right? So if like the filter of anxiety is on your iPhone, and then you like are working on that, right, Jamie, and you take that filter off and now there's not really this anxious filter on the phone anymore and you're still trying to compare your phone to somebody else's android phone and you're going my phone's still really different like why isn't it look like yours or work like yours right well it's because it's a different operating system it doesn't mean there's anything wrong or bad with it it's just you have to like work with it according to its own systemic rules versus trying to operate your iPhone like an Android, you are literally going to be stuck in a state of frustration forever and vice versa. And so it's like, you got to respect the OS you've been given. And so that's how I like to think about neurodivergence is like, on top of your OS, you can have all kinds of filters and you know, specifications that can go in there. But like, once you peel back a lot of those layers at the, at the heart of it, it's still going to be like hardwired and structured to function in a certain way. And so this is what, so that's a lot of times how a lot of late diagnosed people find out is they start like healing their trauma and like doing a lot of therapy. And then all of a sudden, like, but there's still some other things going on here that don't feel like they're rooted in this. Like, why do I still, you know, struggle with eye contact or why do I still right, struggle so can with I, those executive functions? I was going to add you. Can I add that? So this is, this is one of those yes. like classic things that gets confused with, is this a filter on my operating system or is this the operating system? Okay. So if anyone knows me, I don't have social anxiety. I can go into an entire room and which is funny because you're like, well, you had chronic anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, it was a lot of like trauma stuff. (laughs) Um, But I could literally go into an auditorium right now and probably just like talk everybody's ear off or like just chat down the aisles and be like, what's up? But here's the difference between a lens of social anxiety and an operating system of, and this is where I know some people are going to be like, I don't know, Jamie, sometimes when you talk like, Maybe you lean toward like spectrum stuff, which, you know, I have been evaluated for ADHD. I haven't been evaluated for autism, so I can't say that for sure. But what I will tell you folks is 
if you have known me in my adult life, I struggle with eye contact, which is ironic because I'm a therapist, but I do. I <laughs> and went depending on how my day has been going. Sometimes I can like force my brain to stay present with the eye contact. And sometimes it's just like, I can't, I can't even put it on that day. I can't even look. It's barely able to be like connecting in the eye functioning. Okay. So what happens when I go into an office and I say, every time I go to a party, I just can't look anyone in the face. Like I can't talk to them. Like, right. You know, I, I get, I get kind of like in my head about it and they'll be like, Oh, so socially anxious. And I'll be like, no, 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 no. Like I like being at the party. Like I like talking to people. I like engaging with people. I like meeting new people. It's really fun for me. I don't, I don't think about that party as like, Oh my God, I have to be around people and I get panicky. What makes me like possibly panicky or shut down right? This is the symptom of anxiety informed from the operating system, okay? Is my brain struggles with, and this is this is my brain, this is not everybody's experiences with eye contact, but my experience with eye contact, okay, is I struggle with focusing on the sensory demand of maintaining eye contact while I'm thinking and then incorporating that sensory demand of their eye contact while I'm talking and then they're talking. Okay. So I actually function better. I will listen to you more clearly if I am not looking at your eyes and I'm being serious. I can hear you better. I can absorb the information you're giving me better. If I am not looking at your eyes, when I look at your eyes, my brain starts competing for who is going to get integrated more and are you going to be focusing more on the eyes or are you going to focus more on the integration of the content that they're saying in the conversation? So nine times out of 10, my brain will be like, I want to focus on what they're saying. So just don't look directly in their eyes so you can hear what they're saying and you can listen better, right? Is that my anxiety? No, it is literally the operating system competing for which program yes. is going to be in the front of the of the desktop. And then I have to choose. And so the offset, or not the offset, the fallout, I guess, is that people are like, wow, Jamie must be socially anxious because she can't make eye contact. And this is where I will tell you, if you have neurodivergency, when you start claiming with conviction and not letting people insert the narrative over you, whew, that's a game changer, folks. I'm telling you, when I can tell people, oh, no, this is not me being socially anxious. I actually hear you better when I'm not directly looking at your eyes. I can listen. I can be a better um, conversationalist if I am not integrating the demand that, that goes into my brain of your eyes, okay? So... Think about that for a second, though. If someone's speaking my truth over me and they go, no, yes. because people who struggle with eye contact are anxious. And I'm like, what? No, chime well, in, please. Yeah. Please, chime in. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes a lot of this stuff gets socialized um, when we're younger as like moral failings, oh which God. is like, that was like a big part of my personal story is like so... So when I tell you like at least 95% of my neurodivergent symptoms as a child were moralized 
by the people that were raising me. Like, I just thought I was a horrible person. Tell because me. I, tell like, me the story. I, I need examples. Tell us, girl. I need so, you to tell me. I mean, okay. So here's a classic. One of the, like, classic ways that my ASD manifested as a child because like I knew intrinsically that there was something different about me. I I didn't know how to talk to my peers. I mean, when we talk about no eye contact, like I don't think I made actual eye contact with my peers <laughs> until I was like in middle school because I just didn't know you had to and I didn't know why you would. Like it was just anyway. So I And like the more years went by during school for me that like people were pointing out that like it, it was weird that I only talked to the adults. It was weird that I, I did. I literally going out with a librarian. How did people, how did adults not see it? Like if only. (laughs) Because it was like turned into a moral failing on my part somehow or another that like I was like actively trying to like sabotage my own life or something. They were like, why doesn't she try to connect with kids her own age? I don't know. She just avoids them. She just goes to the library and talks to the librarian instead. Like, this is what I mean when we talk about how symptoms were only viewed through the lens of little boys versus girls, because I'm telling you, if I was a boy, somebody would have been like, something's up with this kid. Like you got to get him assessed. But nobody did that for me. Because I I don't know why. Um, and I will actually talk about another reason why I think a lot of neurodivergence gets missed in childhood, but I'll get back to that. Okay. Um, anyway, so this was so I wasn't making eye contact for a long time. And then as time went on and it like my like parents and like other people would start trying to like point out to me, like, CA, like you need to start making friends, you need to like talk to people. I intrinsically knew that like I didn't understand social rules very well. So what I would do is I would people watch a lot. And that was one of the like main behaviors that was absolutely like moralized. And like, I was like literally lectured for, and like, sometimes I literally even was like punished for it. Like for like, it was called gawking, right? Like if I was like gawking at people too much, but I'm like, my brain was going, how else am I supposed to learn how to be a human? Like y'all are telling me that I don't human correctly. So like I got to study. And so that's what my brain told me to do was like, you just got to start watching more people and figure out what they do and then just imitate what they do. And then you'll be fine. But then I would get in trouble for watching people. And that would happen in the classroom a lot. I would be like staring at the other students, how they wrote, how they sat, how they talked to each other. And then like the teacher would be like, pay attention. Why are you paying attention to me? And I'm like, anyway so that was like a huge one for me was like me just like apparently I was like a space cadet or I was always like staring at off into space or staring at other people like I even got made fun of by my own peers for that they'd be like stop staring at me why are you looking at me like that why do why do you always listen to my conversations I remember on the school bus there was two girls that sat like across from me and I would literally just like listen to their conversation the whole time. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And so one day one of them turned to me and was like, see, why do you always stare at us and listen to our conversation? And I felt so much shame. But I realized like, I know why I was doing it because I was like, I want to learn how to talk like a girl. I want to know what you're supposed to do. Like, how do you get a friend? I was in fourth grade and I still didn't ever have a friend. So I was like, I don't know how to be friends. So I'm just looking at two people who are friends 
and figuring out how they do it. Anyway, so that's a huge example, right? Is that like behavior gets moralized rather than like somebody taking note of like a pattern here and going, hey, there's something going on here. But to circle back to what I said, one of the other ways that I think reasons, I think a lot of neurodivergence gets missed in childhood is because it's highly hereditary and so many of our parents are living with undiagnosed neurodivergence. And so your behaviors don't actually raise any alarm bells in their heads because they're like, isn't that what all kids are like? I was like that as a kid. Like they literally just normalize it because that was also their normal. <laughs> and so what's interesting is the reason like my diagnosis journey started with my kid getting diagnosed and that child had. ADHD symptoms that were presenting in the much more overt way, the way that we would typically see it in boys. And so I was like, oh, and I knew, here's the thing, my brother was diagnosed with ADHD. Interesting. The boy of my family was diagnosed with it, but the girl was not anyway. But I believe me, I'm diagnosed now and I absolutely have it. So anyway, so I was like, oh, I remember my brother had ADHD and it looked just like this. Like the symptoms were like spot on, like so similar. And I was like, maybe she has ADHD about my kid. She gets diagnosed. And then I am the type of parent that loves doing research. <clears throat> There's my ASD showing up anyway. So like I deep dive into like ADHD and like everything having to do with it. And I'm, I'm, I'm consuming all of the information imaginable so that I can help her the best ways I can. Through that research, I was like, now, wait a dang minute. <clears throat> now, wait a dang minute. Like, I'm reading so many things that I'm like, that's me. That's also me. That's what that's like. That's what that feels like internally. And I started realizing so much of the diagnostic process has to do with how symptoms present externally. And those external presentations, as we pointed out, the only ones that were really being observed was the external presentations in little boys, usually little white boys. And so because my external presentations looked different and manifested differently than that, my diagnoses were totally missed. But what's missing from the entire diagnostic process, regardless of gender, is the internal experience of like, what is going on inside this right. person that is driving these particular behaviors or manifestations of symptoms. And that's the thing that as I un, like as I learned about myself and then started to unmask all of these parts of me that I had, as you've said, like socially adapted and other things that I had like put on to figure out how to like maintain some level of societal function. As I started to like peel those back, it was really a part of that was getting in touch with like the internal what's behind a lot of this, right? As you said, like what's behind the packing anxiety? Well, once you realize that it wasn't actually about, oh, I'm scared I'm going to die or I'm scared I'm going to embarrass myself. And you realize, oh, I genuinely literally do not know how to organize this task. I don't trust myself to not forget something. I don't know what's actually needed, what's necessary versus not necessary. These are all things that have to do with ADHD and neurodivergence. 
And I learned that I I didn't even know the phrase executive function or executive dysfunction until I started doing research to try to support my own kid. And then I realized what executive functioning was. And I was like, I struggle with all of this. It's incredibly difficult for me to take a huge task and break it down into small manageable tasks and keep that process organized and motivated from start to finish. Literally borderline impossible. And so... Anyway, so that's a little bit of my own personal story. But through that, I really kind of wanted to illustrate the emphasis of these like external behaviors versus the internal experience of the person experiencing them. Because a lot of times what looks like like a, a panic attack or like my when I was growing up, my family always called it a spaz attack. When I would have oh, a meltdown, you're such a spaz. Okay, spaz, right? I, who hasn't heard that phrase? Yeah. If you're, if you grew up neurodivergent, you were called a spaz at one point. And so, for me, it was like when I would get into my sensory meltdowns, I nobody had language to understand. Nobody knew what was really going on, and they all anybody would see was whatever that like last drop or catalyst was that pushed me over the edge, and then they'd go oh my God, like, why is she completely freaking out? Because her half a sandwich fell on the floor. And it's like, oh, it's, I'm not having this level of a meltdown because a sandwich fell on the floor. Like when I'm in a low sensory state or whatever, like I can handle something falling on the floor, totally fine. But nobody saw or paid attention to the entire buildup leading up to that. And the fact that also while that was going on, I was dealing with, 20 sensory inputs. I had dealt with an emotional, like huge, like thing that happened to me at school that I wasn't able to process in the moment. And so that's all still bottled up inside of me. And all of a sudden, just like, you know, the, the match that lights the (laughs) the tank or whatever goes off and all people see is that. And then they go, Oh my God, like she's crazy. Why is she freaking out? And this is, this is, I think something that can help people, like however you want to say the people that don't have neurodivergency that sometimes see these things and misunderstand them. Right. And they think, wow, I have to, you know, accommodate every sensory demand. I have to like change every environment that someone who's neurodivergent, um, like needs me to change the volume or the lighting. Like I need to adapt everything around them. And it's like, listen, we understand there has to be a balance, but to be fair, This is the way I would help people understand what's going on in some of these folks' brains, okay? Is like, think about the person that can integrate eye contact. They immediate, it's like a, this is why I'm going to use this word, but it might not be the perfect word. It's almost like the privilege to not have that task be demanding, Okay. So if you, if you tell me, I don't understand why eye contact is so hard for you. What I hear is I've never been challenged to integrate information when I'm looking in someone's eyes. That's what I hear. I hear that you're telling me, or you might be telling me, sadly, there's like another variant here that you may have the same thing as I, as me, but you've beaten yourself into submission and you force yourself to like pretend you're okay when you're really struggling. Right. And so it's like, regardless, it's one of those things where if I'm like having the audacity to be like, 
hey, um, teacher, I'm actually focusing more when I doodle. And then what are we doing? We're now fighting over the narrative being true. And this is what I think a lot of neurodivergence, this is where there's that whole spectrum versus narcissism. People, like, people are like, no, you're narcissistic. And um, people who have autism are like, no, I know my truth. I am not trying to be like manipulative here. This is my reality, right? So if I was trying to be manipulative and I just wanted to doodle instead of take notes, I could say the exact same thing as someone with neurodivergency, right? Think about that. So now we're having a conversation of you either believe me or you don't. And if you do not believe me, now you're basically the default is that you think I'm trying to con you. All right. So if I'm in class, I'm giving you the analogy so you can walk through it. Right. And my professor goes, Jamie, I need to talk to you after class. They talk to me after class and I sit down with them and they go, you need to focus more in class. And I look at them and I say, I am. I've actually been focusing even more now that I've been able to create kind of this tool. And they go, are you referring to doodling that I keep seeing you do throughout the entire class? And I say, yes, that's actually how I'm able to focus more. And they do this. <sighs> sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great workaround. I've seen that before. And I look at them genuinely confused. This is actually how I stop chewing my pencil, stop tapping my pencil, stop tapping my foot, stop spinning my chair. I've been able to channel all of this energy into the doodling that is quiet, that does not disrupt anybody, and it helps me focus on more of when you present. And they look at me and they go, you're not focusing, stop doodling. This is where this like crossroads happen, right? Because when someone says, I've been able to learn a strategy to help me maintain focus, and they are talking to someone that has never dealt with struggled. Yeah. that mm -hmm. struggle, whatever their lens or like life view of like their way of paying attention is, is going to then be applied to someone with neurodivergence, and they are either going to be called a liar, a manipulator, they're going to be questioned, they're going defiant. to- defiant. Defiant gonna, is a huge one. Or stubborn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and this is right. what's unfortunate is that happens, that label happens a lot with children of color who are struggling with neurodivergence, is they just get labeled as defiant yep. and- yep. And that's it. It's just that we want to talk about moralizing. Oh like God. that has actually been well studied is that like black students get disciplined in the classroom at a much higher rate than white students do for the same exact, like the literal same behavior. And in black students and other students of color, it's much more moralized and much more heavily like paid attention to. And that is why we have to do so much like advocacy around neurodivergence. And thankfully, like there is, there's a huge surgence of it happening right now. Thankfully, I'm like, so glad that my kids are like, being raised in a generation where like, this is like, finally being better paid attention to it's being studied better, it's being managed and understood a little bit better. And I'm personally like raising my kids with a lot of self-advocacy skills so much so that this example that you're giving, Jamie, I literally, one of my kids actually advocated for themselves 
in a classroom. It wasn't with their regular teachers because all of their regular teachers are amazing and they actually do know all about my kids' neurodivergencies and are amazing with it. My kids go to an incredible school. Um, but they had like a guest speaker and the guest speaker actually like tried to call out my kid for not paying attention for literally exactly what you're describing. They were doodling in their notebook. And the guest speaker was like, I really need your eyes on me so that I know you're listening. And my kid went, I understand that that's what paying attention looks like for a lot of people. But for me, I pay attention better when I'm doodling. And then they looked, this is what my kid did. They looked at the actual teacher who was still in the classroom to make sure that that teacher heard the exchange and like validated and was like, yep, that's okay. Like that's how they listen best. And I, I heard this story afterwards and I was like, I got chills. I was like, wow, this is incredible <laughs> that I, I is like, man, if I had language to describe my internal experiences, I'm getting like teary eyed because like, this is like change in action. I think about like little me in the classroom having no language to describe what was going on inside of me and like all of my behavior just getting like moralized and punished. And it was just a behavior issue and to know. And like, so as a child, it's important as an adult, it's important to like take the time to get to know ourselves um, enough to understand how best to advocate for ourselves. Because since unmasking, and this is where we'll leave it because we're running out of time, but um, we didn't really get into like dynamics of how this do, happens in relationship. We're going to have to do a part two because I do want to talk about how this impacts the relationships around us as we unmask. But it starts with the self. And so internally, I have become the the leaps and bounds that I have made in my ability to like love myself since unmasking have like it, it's been like diving into a depth of an ocean that I didn't even know it exi- existed. Now that I understand myself, like there was so much self-loathing pre-diagnosis, pre-unmasking, because again, I moralized it all. I just thought I was a bad person. I thought I was unorganized. I thought I was not smart enough. I thought, you know, all of these things, I just turned into like some failing on my part. Once you get language to understand what's really happening inside and you start to actually build into your life, um, like practical supports (laughs) to help manage a lot of the stuff that drives the OS, right? <laughs> the operating system that you're, you're, you're working with, it, it changes everything. It, and you understand what your thresholds are. I, since unmasking, this is what I wanted to say and like learning about myself and advocating for myself and putting pl- things into implements into my life to help support myself. I rarely have any, what we would refer to as autistic meltdowns anymore. It's very rare. And when that happens, there's usually like really extenuating circumstances that are like kind of beyond my control. But in like my day-to-day life, I, it's, it's weird to admit this because it just like shows how far I've come. But when I was still really heavily masking and really lacking a lot of skills and language to understand myself, I was having multiple meltdowns a week. Did I call them meltdowns? No, because I didn't know that that's what it was. I just, again, I thought I was a terrible mom and thought that I didn't love my kids enough because the sounds of like, I I would like lose it after a while just because of the sensory input of them like 
kids are allowed, right? And so I was like, I don't love my kids enough. I'm a bad mom because I literally can't listen to my child tell me a story. And it wasn't that I can't listen to my child tell a story. It was that I was neglecting my sensory thresholds. Now that I've learned that and I take care of my sensory thresholds, I am so, I know that I, like, I am a wonderful mother. I love my children. I love hearing their stories. But there's a difference between having the capacity, the sensory capacity and emotional capacity to hold space for my kid telling me a story with all of that sensory input that that's going to involve because my kids are really loud and they're very, when they tell stories and when they're talking to me, Jamie knows this because we know each other's kids really well, you know, they're in your face and they're even touching me and all of this. I know that that's how they like to interact with me. So I have to take care of my sensory thresholds leading up to interacting with my kids so that I can be super present to them and like allow them to just be their full neurodivergent selves and like as silly and loud and crazy as they want to be. And anyway, so that's my story and I'm sticking to it. And um, part of unmasking neurodivergence is learning to love yourself in a new way. And I just think there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah, I think that's exactly where um, we'll kind of leave it because, yeah, we are going to try to we're going to try to add something layers to this because this is just barely breaking the surface. But let's leave it at that and we will start brainstorming part two for you and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you so much, y'all, for tuning in. If anything we said resonated, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. This absolutely helps us grow, and we really do value your voice on this podcast. So if you have anything you'd like to contribute, any tips, any topics, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at unlearned at recollectedself.com. You can find us on Instagram at the unlearned podcast or individual Instagrams at recollected self and CAs is at embracing divergence. You can also find us over on TikTok under those handles. If you want to join our Patreon for $5 a month, you can be our coffee fiend club member. And that's going to give you access to our podcast within a podcast, which is called unhinged. This is basically where we let loose completely unedited we are literally just shooting the breeze having fun you can see our full personalities and it is a blast honestly it's pretty fun so if you want to join us you can find that at patreon.com unlearned and that's it the last thing i want to tell you is i want you to be brave enough to fight for the person you want to become and this is how we do the work